Um, so my dad is into uh, family history. Anyone else? Anyone like that stuff? Like researching? He has found a, a lot of branches of the Dubiac Dorfler tree. He's crashed family reunions that people didn't know he was related to. <laughs> He's a wild man. Um, but it's been fascinating because he, he had a, a bunch of letters that he came across that were written in German. And he, he had these just like, um, I don't know how long he had them. He got them from an older relative he visited. They gave him these stack of letters. And then in his current place, they live at Pleasant Hills Apartments, he found a woman who could translate them for him. So it was really cool. He would go to her apartment, it's about a year ago, year and a half ago, and this older uh, German immigrant lady uh, would translate uh, the letters. And she explained, I think it was a letter with a dark black border meant it was announcing a death. Like there were just customs in, in the, the way the letters were written and sent. And, uh, and, he, and they were exciting for him because they were the closest he would get to kind of getting that person's biography, right? You get a little bit of their information. And what's interesting is we're getting a really short version of Paul's spiritual biography this morning. That's what Galatians 1 from 13 to kind of the middle of 2 is all about. He's telling the story of his journey. He's doing it for a purpose. His purpose is, his big purpose is to show them that no one else taught him the gospel of Jesus except Jesus himself. Uh, that's the huge overriding purpose. But what I want to point out are some discoveries we make from his own spiritual journey that help us understand our own. Because even though like our lives are unique and different, God is the same. God works similarly from person to person. And, um, and so let's begin. The first discovery that uh, we're going to see is this, that life without Jesus revolves around, kind of like the way the planets revolve around the sun, life without Jesus revolves around our own opinion of righteousness. Okay, so I'm going to begin by reading verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Now, first, I just want you to see how his violence and his reputation were going hand in hand, right? It was because he was a persecutor, because he was taking violent actions against the new Christians, called the followers of the way, that his esteem was rising amongst his own people. He was, did you see what he says in verse 14? At the end, he says, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. It was so bad. Personally, was the day when Stephen got pushed out of Jerusalem's gates. Stephen was a follower of Jesus. And it said, Paul stood there and the witnesses would lay their cloaks at his feet and they did a group execution where they picked up stones and they struck Stephen with them till he died. I'm sure Saul was picking up a stone, not just watching cloaks. That is what happened in his heart. He justified the violence 
and he justified the hatred because his life revolved around his own and his group's teachings on what righteousness is. When we're in that place spiritually, we don't even see how dark the darkness is. He probably felt good about himself on that day. Would you agree? He probably thought he was doing God a favor by having this blasphemer stoned to death. Years later, he would look at his life and say, I was the chief of sinners. Couldn't even see it. In Romans 10, he wrote this. This is years later. He writes this about his fellow Jews. He says in Romans 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul's saying they're zealous for God, but it's rooted in ignorance. And the ignorance, he explains in verses 3 and 4, he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, that is their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, when Paul helped kill Stephen, he was ignorant of God's righteousness and trying to establish his own. He says he didn't submit to God's righteousness back then. And so his heart was broken for his peers, whom he realized were still not submitting to God's righteousness. It didn't lead him to condemn and curse and hate and treat with violence people who disagreed with him like it did early in his life. Instead, it led him to pray for them, to love them and desire that they would not be stuck in this ignorance forever. Now, nothing's really changed 2,000 years later, right? What life without Jesus still revolves around our own sense of what's righteous. It might be the traditions of people. It might be the rebellion of our generation. Whatever it might be, whatever we think is morally good and superior is what humans orchestrate their life around. Even the worst people have an ethical code. They still have a way that they justify themselves. So maybe their brand of righteousness is something like transgenderism. And they think, yes, it's right that you pick your own gender, and if you don't agree with me, you're wrong and you're evil, and if you do, you're good, right? Maybe their, their core of righteousness is democratic freedoms. Everyone should have the freedom to speech, the right to bear arms, the right to assemble. If you agree with me, you're good and you're righteous. If you disagree with me, you're evil. Now here's the central argument, and check this out, ready? It holds true whether that person actually is for something that's good, like democratic freedoms, or for something that's not, like transgenderism. The argument itself does not change. And guys, the more I thought about this, it literally is like, it's like a cliff. It is a cliff. It is a one step off and you're gone and you're down and there is no graduated slope here. What's the argument? It's that nothing we do earns us God's righteousness even when we do good things that is the shocker of the gospel it is a 
movement of faith to Jesus Christ. It is trust in the Son of God and Him alone. That's it. There's no other righteousness that is the righteousness of God. That's the key phrase in all of this. There are plenty of causes that are good and that are just. And they align at times with God's decree for what's good and just. But your obedience, your passion for them, will not gain you the righteousness of God. We can't get there from here. Paul, that was the, so here's the question though, right? All other righteousness essentially is subjective. Whether it's your brand of transgenderism, your democratic freedoms, whatever it is, right? I pick kind of two things on the ends a little bit. But whatever your thing is, maybe it's just raising a good family. That's the whole source of your righteousness. You want to raise good kids and you want to have a nice lawn and you'll be happy if everything else goes okay from there, right? It doesn't matter what it is. How do we break free from the subjective view that, ah, yes, this is what life is about. This is good, and I'm going to build my life on it, to something so radically different. How does Paul leave behind chasing the righteousness of his peers? How does he go others? There is no bigger reversal, no bigger U-turn, right, in Scripture than the life of Paul. How does he make that move? He doesn't do it. God did it. See, that's the power of God's decrees. When we think about God's decrees, and when we think about language like God's choice and election, what we're saying is it takes a force outside of our own subjectivity to show us Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, all you can say is, thank you, Lord, for taking the blinders off my eyes. Right? Look at the next two verses in 15 and 16, because this gets to our second point. Verse 15 but when he, this is God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is the next stage in his journey. If the first principle. around our own righteousness. Then the second principle is this. God knows and chooses us before we know and choose him. Do you see why election has to happen? Otherwise we're trapped in subjectivity. There's no way around it. Unless God shows us the objective reality of Jesus Christ. Before your kids were born, you might have chosen the color of their room, you know, blue, pink, or if you waited on the gender, maybe you went green and yellow, right? They want to commit to the wall. They don't want to have to repaint the walls. You might have even chosen their name. I know a few people who, you know, they find out what gender their child is, and then they pick a name, and they wanted, you know, that baby in mommy's belly, that's a real baby. It doesn't become a real baby after it's born, right? They start talking and they use the name. They might not tell you, but they've picked one. 
that's about all we get to do. You can pick the wall color and you can pick the name. What is God doing before we're born? Paul says he set me apart. He called me by his grace. Now, did God do that like the day before Paul was born? You know, like, oh, oh, I didn't think about this guy. All right, let's do this over here. Does that seem a little silly to you? That God would wait the day before someone's born to make eternal decisions? Right? If God's eternal God, he's always making everything eternal. But when does he bring that eternal decision into history? Well, he did it on the day Saul was walking down a road to Damascus. And he saw Christ. And God on that day was pleased to reveal Jesus Christ to Saul. Some of you have shared when you became Christians with me. I love hearing those stories. Some of you was in a truck, driving down the road. Others of you were in a car looking up at the night sky. Some of you, it may have been not a precise point to put your finger on. You just knew there was a moment when you ceased doubting and you knew. And others of you may still be not there. You might be thinking, no, I think it's the righteousness I, I need, the goodness I need. I don't think it's in Jesus. God hasn't revealed yet his son to you. Amen. Pray that he does. You can't muster up faith on your own. Ask God for the gift of faith. There's a guy in the Bible, right, who said, you know, Jesus, I believe. <laughs> Do you remember the next thing he said? Help my unbelief. Psalm 33, 10 and 11 says this. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. plans of his heart to all generations. That's still true today. It's not just for Saul and ancient people. It's for modern, normal people like us. God decrees and chooses and ordains all that comes to pass. In Ephesians, it says, in love, he, that's God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He did that according to the purpose of his will. So if you're a Christian, although you haven't necessarily been set apart to be a missionary to the old Gentile world, none of us have, right? You've still been set apart for salvation. And if you're tracking with us today and you're not a believer, you say, well, what does that mean for me? It means this. Choose Christ. Trust him as your source of all righteousness. And there will be a day, probably very quickly, when you look back and realize he chose you first. You're always responding to God's grace. He got you to the moment of realizing he is the Son of God. So Paul's journey has taken this movement, right? He starts as a persecutor. God was pleased to activate something that decided from all eternity on a particular day going to Damascus. God had ordained this moment for Paul. He ordains our salvation. Not just that, it also says he has uh, decreed essentially the good works beforehand. Right, Ephesians 2.10. Where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he knows us and he chooses us before we know and choose him. He also lays out the paths of our life. He sets the pathway of our life. All of it is the work of God. So those are our first two points, right? Life without Jesus revolves around our own righteousness. To break through that subjectivity, God knows and chooses us before he know, we know and choose him. And this gets us to verse 16 to 24. Paul says, this happened to me. And now he wants to explain where he was, well, well kind of where he went after that. This is part of his bigger point that he wasn't taught the gospel by other apostles and other people. He was actually, what he preached came from Jesus Christ himself. So I'm going to read now verse 16 to 24. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's uh, the apostle Peter's name, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, check this out, this is the, the culmination of the U-turn, verse 23, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So it's clear, right? So just to make sure we're tracking here. Paul's saying, I didn't consult. I didn't learn from, that's verse 16, anybody. So specifically, he says, I didn't even go to Jerusalem where the apostles were for three years after my conversion. And when I went there, I only stayed 15 days, right? Not nearly long enough to be discipled and taught, right? Um, and then he says, then I left there in the Accords of Acts 9, and I was, because he was in danger in Jerusalem. Because remember, he left there as a persecutor under the commission of the high priest. Uh, how do you think the high priest feels when he returns three years later as a preacher of the gospel, right? And so Paul... And he says in verse 22, I wasn't known. I was still unknown in person. I mean, he had a good reputation now as someone who preached the gospel, but they didn't really know him personally. Right? So he's trying to make the point, look, 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 look. Everything I have and have taught you guys in Galatia has come from Jesus Christ. But I want to just round off on verse 24 here. It says, they glorify God because of me. Well, that's true, right? Because they knew there was no possible way on earth this kind of change could happen where the man who they were literally afraid of their life for is now on their side declaring the glory of Jesus unless God had done something amazing in this man's life. And that's exactly what God did. And so the believers, the more Paul gave his life over to obedience and sacrifice and love in the gospel, the more the church around him glorified God. Now, sometimes we want to switch it. We want people to glorify us because of God, right? The good gifts and strengths and talents God gives us. We want people to glorify us. But Paul says, no, they glorify God because of me. Because I had given myself over. God had won. It's all about God's grace. 
from first, from eternity past when he chose me, right, and set me apart, to the little present little day where he's now kind of hiding out from Jerusalem until he goes back there years later. Now, it got me thinking about statues. I'm thinking about statues. So I lived in Richmond on, uh, for a few years, and we lived on Monument Avenue, which has been in the news lately, and literally right outside our window was Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart on his big horse. I think his legs were up because he died in battle. There was some significance to the horses. And then if you go to the other side of the block, there was Robert E. Lee. We used to take our cat out for a walk. That's how lame we were. We took our cat for a walk on a leash down Monument Avenue. There's nothing like walking a cat. Walking a cat, I can't compare it to anything. It's like, I don't know, I'd say it's like walking something else, but it's not. They just kind of slink and hide and roll over and trying to get out of the harness the whole time. You know, the dogs are like, what are they doing as they're going by them? But we used to walk our cat back and forth. We were, we were lame. We had no kids. We were bored. Um, now those statues, they're probably coming down. I got to think about this too. There is no way on earth Robert E. Lee would want a statue of himself in that city. I mean, have you ever thought about that? This is what Robert E. Lee said. They invited him up to Gettysburg to place granite markers at the field positions where Gettysburg Battle was. This was his letter back. He says, I think it wiser, moreover, not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the examples of those nations who endeavored to obliterate the marks of civil strife, to commit to oblivion the feelings engendered. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, R.E. Lee. He didn't even want to put markers. There's no way on earth that man would have wanted a huge statue of himself in Richmond. Either way, it's probably going to a museum at this point. But it got me thinking about this. Is it ever wise to make a statue of a human? Like, is that ever a good idea? I mean, is there ever a way you can make a statue of a person and not rob God of his glory? Think about it from that perspective. Statues are meant to not just memorialize someone. We have books that do that, right? Movies and stuff. They're really meant to stir up feelings of devotion and honor. Ultimately, they may not say it, but they're meant to bring that person glory. That's what idols were all about, right? The idols were statues, but they were of gods, not people or people they thought were godlike. And I, and I got to think of myself, I'm like, you know, I don't think it's possible to commemorate a person in a statue without robbing God of his glory. And when they've done something truly wonderful, let's say something that everyone agreed on was good, even still, are we saying glorifying God because of them, or are we glorifying them because of God's work through their life? Can you imagine Saul ever wanting a statue of himself anywhere? It would repulse him. This guy, he would say, no. If you want to build anything, build a church and worship God in it. Did God want a statue ever of himself built? No, he says, you can't make an image of me. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? I was joking with someone about this, and they said, they said, well, what are they going to put on top of the, the monument? I said, well, because well, they're on big stone pedestals, right? Huge. I mean, go up to like, probably stand 10 feet tall before you even hit the statue. They're big traffic circles, enormous statues. I said, well, hopefully nothing. And he jokes, he goes, maybe they'll put a statue of me up there. And I thought, yeah, I'm sure that's going to happen. But it does reveal a little something about our hearts. 
I mean, we'd kind of like a statue of us somewhere. Maybe not a big one in a traffic circle. You guys, you know, maybe if you just have a little statue of me, you know, on your shelf, right? You get a little statue of you, right? There's a part of us that so wants people to glorify us. And we crave the worship and the applause and the approval. We don't necessarily say we want it. We might pretend we don't want it in public, but wow, do our hearts go aflutter when we know people are thinking good of us and thinking, wow, they're so good and gifted. As you mature in your spiritual journey, you'll battle this all the way till your death. To God be the glory. Only, always, forever. Romans 11.36 says it so well. For from him, right, from him, through him, mediating power, To him be glory forever. I'll just close with this image. God's in some way writing an amazing symphony. It's a symphony of grace. He's ordained its flow from the beginning, but in real time in history, he's bringing it to pass. He wrote Paul's measures 2,000 years ago and played them for his glory. And now he's writing your parts. The language won't be new. We're all echoes of the same gospel, which is that God is glorified and Jesus is the source of all righteousness. But in some ways, your part is completely unique because there's no one else like you on this planet and there never will be another one like you. You have special gifts. You have your own weaknesses and strengths. If your life is given to Jesus Christ, ask the Lord to show you what is the part you have written for me. Ask him to fill you to play that part well so that God would be glorified. And as he is glorified, we are really blessed. All right, let's pray.